0: welcome to you can't be neutral a political podcast inspired by howard zinn and progressive and radical activism taking a look at society media and politics you can follow you can't be neutral on twitter at ycb neutral you can check out all the back episodes at you there you'll find some links to make a donation you can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent and you can also find a link there to send me a message. First up is a story published at truthout.org, written by Jonathan Ng. This July, a constitutional convention convened in Chile following the mass uprising that swept Santiago in October 2019. The convention is the most representative body in Chile's history, including many citizens who never previously held political office. Members include teachers, social workers, community activists, and a homemaker half of the 155 representatives are women and at least six are from the LGBTI community rather than a purely national affair the convention holds deep significance for the international left in many ways the constitutional process is a radical experiment in inclusion and participatory democracy yet it is also a reckoning with past dreams and entrenched inequality In the 1970s, Chile assumed the vanguard of neoliberalism. The convention marks a point of rupture in Chilean history, signifying the failure of the neoliberal constitution that coalesced during the military dictatorship. And it marks the culmination of a history of class struggle that extends back to the Chilean revolution. The immediate catalyst for that revolution was Salvador Allende, the first socialist to win a presidential election in Latin America. Under the banner of popular unity, the bespectacled doctor championed an ambitious agenda, including the expansion of social services, land reform, and full nationalization of the copper industry, quote, the salary of Chile, that garnered the majority of its export revenue. After his election on September 4, 1970, a broad cross-section of the working class came tantalizingly close to political power for the first time. The historian Peter Wynn evokes the popular ferment in Weavers of Revolution. Quote, it was something we had never expected, former textile worker Alma Gallegos told Wynne. It was a joy that couldn't fit inside one to see all the compañeros embracing each other, whether they were poor or hungry or well-dressed. Galvanized by popular unity's soaring rhetoric, a militant and newly empowered working class mobilized to transform Chilean society. The promise and threat of revolution divided the country for three years as political conflict spiraled into open-class warfare. In large part, Allende's platform captivated voters because of the persistence of extreme poverty. During the early 1970s, the North American Congress on Latin America reported that 40% of Chileans suffered from malnutrition. Leading historian Frank Godeshow concludes that about half the working population earned less than minimum wage. At night, bleary-eyed children slept beneath the bridges spanning the Mapocho River. But the election promised profound change. In his first speech as president-elect, Allende simply asked to be El Compañero Presidente, a fellow comrade and worker. The sociologist Thomas Mullian suggests that the popular unity was quote the most democratic moment in the political history of Chile. Working-class Chileans finally felt they were historical subjects with the ability to to construct a more just society. Seizing the moment, the parties composing popular unity suspended ideological differences to pursue socialism through political means, what observers called the Via Chilena, Chilean road. Allende's advisor, Jean Garces, aspired to transform the class composition of the state, harnessing legal channels to check elite power and democratize the economy. By stanching the outward flow of profits and nationalizing strategic sectors, Chile would accumulate the surplus necessary to develop domestic industries, expand the internal market, and fortify a welfare state. Yet Allende's and Garce's visions of a dirigiste state bestowing socialism on obedient workers failed to anticipate the grassroots surge that followed. Their, quote, revolution from above inspired a revolution from below that radicalized the Via Chilena. While accelerating a confrontation with the oligarchy and the Nixon administration in the U.S., previously disenfranchised groups, those the elite cruelly called Los Rotos, the broken, occupied farms and seized factories, formed worker assemblies, industrial cordons, and neighborhood councils, and became formidable political subjects with a sharp sense of their own agency. Above all, they built people power, making the revolution their own. Political ferment boiled over in factory seizures, often to the chagrin of cautious bureaucrats. The machinist Carlos Mujica recalled that he and his colleagues seized factories to demonstrate that, quote, workers were also capable of managing a business. Labor organizer Jorge Varas watched workers at the Yarur textile mill spontaneously demand nationalization. I have never in my life seen anything like this, he exclaimed. It was incredible. It was revolution. Two thousand workers shouted, We want socialization. Yet popular unity faced aggressive backlash. Adversaries engineered a legislative impasse and charged Allende with totalitarian designs. Meanwhile, the Nixon administration financed opposition parties, organized an embargo, and goaded the military to strike. Before the revolution, Nixon largely neglected Latin America, but the revolution jolted his administration into action. Chilean diplomat Orlando Letelier confided that Allende's election noticeably upset the president. Quote, That son of a bitch, that son of a bitch, Nixon barked while pummeling his palm with a fist. We're going to smash him. His administration worried that the Chilena offered an appealing alternative to capitalism. I feel strongly, Nixon confided, that this line is important on the people of the world. If he can prove that he can set up a Marxist anti-American policy, others will do the same. In response, U.S. policymakers engineered an economic siege, blocking financial credits in copper markets, while supporting the Chilean opposition. The Via Chilena finally succumbed to tragedy on September 11, 1973, when conservative officers intervened with U.S. backing, searing the presidential palace's neoclassical facade with ordnance. Although they justified the coup by accusing Allende of dictatorial intent, it was the popular ferment that preoccupied them. While vilifying the revolution from above, the Nixon administration and Chilean opposition really feared the revolution from below. Under Augusto Pinochet, the military dictatorship divested from social services, smashed unions, and opened the country to foreign capital. Inequality increased dramatically as Chile became a laboratory for neoliberalism with an extreme tendency towards privatization. Even today, private interests such as the Marubeni Corporation largely control the country's water supply, pension program, and education system. After Pinochet lost a referendum in 1988, the country slowly transitioned to civilian rule. But change was bittersweet. By accepting the 1980 constitution, elaborated under his shadow. The political coalition that brought President Patricio Aylwin to power did something the military never could. It legitimized neoliberalism. A conservative Christian Democrat, Aylwin himself, had backed the coup. Since then, every administration has accommodated itself to the country's neoliberal constitution. Popular discontent has periodically surged, most visibly climaxing in massive strikes in the education sector. In 2006 and 2011, students shut down schools across the country in order to protest glaring inequities. Tuition rates remain among the highest in the world, and access to resources varies widely across districts. Many of Chile's youngest and most radical politicians, including Deputy Camila Vallejo, and presidential candidate Gabriel Boric cut their teeth in the student movement. Chile reached a point of rupture in 2019 when the neoliberal regime consolidated during the transition entered an organic crisis. At the time, the National Teachers Union warned that the education system was falling to pieces. Educators reported stagnant wages, schools that lacked heat, and rats scurrying across classroom floors. Union leader Mario Aguilar petitioned the government for months. Quote, Unfortunately, there was no response, he lamented. President Sebastián Piñera largely ignored the union's grievances. Aguilar recalled that the government flirted with reforms, but did not even offer them in a written proposal. In response, teachers launched a seven-week national strike on June 3. After teachers walked out, Minister of Education Marcela Cubillos the daughter of a Pinochet area minister, suggested they were lazy. The Ministry of Education became a contested space along the Almeida, Santiago's main artery. While working at nearby archives that summer, I repeatedly found myself in the middle of a demonstration. When traffic lights turned green, demonstrators piled into the street, weaving between cars and waving union flags. A gigantic banner supporting strikers hung on the building across the street, while another adorned the nearby University of Chile. During the strike's fifth week, the Ministry of Education struck in solidarity with the teachers. That day, the building was conspicuously vacant. A bored crowd of police in body armor fidgeted before a handwritten sign on the gate. Ministry of Education workers support Chilean teachers. After a solar eclipse, Minister Cubillos appeared on tabloids in solar shades. Critics portrayed her as an aloof Martian, willfully ignorant of earthly matters. The teachers' strike reached its inconclusive denouement on July 23 of that year. Educators returned to the classroom, but the Pañera administration remained inflexible. In retrospect, the popular strike was a prelude, illuminating dividing lines, channeling widespread discontent, and foreshadowing the massive uprising that followed. On October 18, 2019, protests gripped Santiago after authorities raised the cost of public transportation, freezing the subterranean network that knits the capital together. Chile is one of the most expensive public transit systems in Latin America. Yet the price hike was merely the proverbial drop that spilled a deluge as thousands took to the streets to denounce long standing grievances. A working class that once waged revolution had recovered its voice. Protesters expressed smoldering disgust with the existing political regime while emphasizing its roots in the dictatorship, brandishing signs such as New Constitution, Without Blood, Without Pinochet. And especially popular slogans stressed that the problem was structural. It's not 30 pesos, it's 30 years. Ultimately, the uprising signified the rejection of a liberal regime that politicians had grafted onto the edifice of a dictatorship, a negotiated transition that internalized rather than confronted the inequities and trauma of the past. Yet the October uprising also dramatized the continuing importance of the Chilean revolution to the political imaginary and lexicon. After curfew, protesters defiantly saturated the air with songs by Kulapayun, Victor Jara, and other revolutionary artists whose songs had become emblems of resistance. At the height of the uprising, 1.2 million demonstrators packed the Plaza Italia, an event that inevitably stirred memories of the vast gatherings that defined the popular unity period. Initially, the Piñera administration responded with oppression, Police fired rubber bullets and tear gas into crowds, eventually injuring thousands of civilians and notoriously blinding Fabiola Campiani, a mother of three. Campiani was in a peaceful neighborhood and heading to work when police inexplicably fired a tear gas canister into her face. The Chilean Human Rights Commission has denounced Piñera before the International Criminal Court for overseeing, quote, a systemic and widespread attack against the civilian population. In many ways, the bare-fisted response was suggestive. A neoliberal laboratory, Chile's welfare state, has suffered debilitating blows. When citizens interact with the state, it is often with the repressive apparatus, the very institutions that originally imposed neoliberalism. Above all, the violence revealed the desperation and weakness of a political regime that had lost its legitimacy, and a working class that had lost its fear. Twenty-eight days after the initial uprising, the government presented plans for a plebiscite that would allow citizens to vote for a constitutional convention. The news was a bombshell. Many protesters indeed regarded the 1980 constitution as the underlying issue. Yet the historical significance lay even deeper. As the historian Gabriel Salazar emphasizes, Chileans have never democratically drafted a constitution before. Pressure from below again forced the hand of those at the top. The official plan cited, quote, the country's grave political and social crisis, claiming its object was, quote, to seek peace and social justice through a procedure that is indisputably democratic. President Jamie Quintana of the Senate portrayed the plebiscite as a peaceful and democratic solution to the crisis. This is a historic night for Chile, Quintana announced, admitting that we politicians are indeed responsible for many of the injustices that Chileans have pointed out to us. In October 2020, 77% of voters approved the formation of a constitutional convention, and in May, Chileans elected their representatives for the convention. The high voter turnout and results signified an unambiguous rejection of the status quo a remarkable number of representatives were independents who had never held political office. Many were young, their average age is 45 years old, brandished progressive credentials, and participated in the very social movements that had converged on the Plaza Italia. Feminists even convinced organizers to accept gender parity. We know not only feminists will enter because of parity, but also women opposed to women's rights, noted activist Karina Nojales. yet even they will enter thanks to the parity that feminism achieved. The revolution's legacy is palpable throughout this process. A founder of the convention's leftist coalition, Gabriel Boric, pointedly referenced Allende after winning its nomination for the November presidential election. Boric claimed that the revolutionary, quote, "...reverberates in our memory." paraphrasing his famous prophecy that much sooner than later, great avenues will again open through which will pass the free man to construct a better society. New avenues opened when the convention convened on July 4, 2021, marking a symbolic rupture with the past. Instead of graying party bosses in stiff suits, enthusiastic representatives strolled alongside ordinary citizens from the Plaza Italia, To the former national congress building singing a revolutionary hymn the president of the convention elisa loncon is a mapuche academic with a history of indigenous rights activism in her first official address she denounced colonialism and racism while promoting a constitution that acknowledges chile's plurinational character loncon describes the convention as an exercise in participatory democracy in inclusion. Her colleague and vice president of the convention, Jane Bassa, emphasizes that the convention is, quote, without a doubt, the most representative institution in the country's history, reflecting its political, cultural, and geographic diversity. Rather than placate dissent, the convention has stimulated and rechanneled political activism. Community organizer living near Plaza Italia observes that the constitutional process has inspired many conscientious people. The excitement among the neighborhood organizations, feminists, environmentalists, and others is irrepressible. You see the enthusiasm of people wanting to participate, wanting to contribute with their own knowledge. Social movements, communities, and individual Chileans have inundated the convention with petitions proposing everything from the right to sports and water to environmental and consumer protections. Currently, the convention faces daunting challenges. Conservatives have launched a smear campaign accusing its leaders of partisanship, incompetence, and reckless spending. A leading progressive representative, Rodrigo Rojas Bade, triggered a national scandal after wrongly claiming to have cancer and the fate of the eventual document remains an outstanding question. Yet 50 years after Allende's election, ordinary Chileans are pursuing revolutionary change through legal means, democratizing the state by literally overhauling its constitution. In other words, they are following a strategy reminiscent of the Via Chilena, and as in the Chilean revolution, change has come from the bottom. Here in the U.S. and particularly in the uh, commercial media in the U.S., there's a lot of um, proponents supporting the notion that the welfare state in general and unemployment benefits in particular um, make people lazy, make people not want to work, basically keep people out of the labor force. It's an opinion repeated frequently by conservatives, whether they be Republican or Democratic conservatives or other, um, and and amplified by the media, and it's wrong based on the data. Here's a piece from Kenny Stansel, published at CommonDreams.org. Republican lawmakers argued, and many of their Democratic counterparts accepted, that slashing federal jobless aid would lead to robust growth in employment. However, data released Friday shows that while 8 million people were booted from expanded unemployment insurance programs last month, employers added just 194,000 jobs, the weakest monthly increase this year. I hope this puts an end to the false myth that UI benefits keep people from working, said Representative Rashida Tlaib. They don't. We can't build back better by adopting GOP talking points and putting them into this policy, she added. This was the wrong call a month ago, and it's the wrong call today. According to the right-wing theory, the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance, PUA, and Pandemic Emergency Unemployment Compensation, PEUC, benefits introduced in the early stages of the coronavirus crisis were keeping people from taking jobs. So removing a key source of income from millions of people would force them to return to the labor market in droves. This starved the people back to work strategy, as Senator Bernie Sanders called the UI cuts, did not work to say the least, said policy analyst Matt Brunig, founder of the People's Policy Project, a left-wing think tank. The September jobs report from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics Bruning noted in a Friday blog post, showed the worst month of job growth since Joe Biden became president and the second worst since May of last year when the pandemic labor market recovery began. Citing the BLS data, Bruning wrote that 194,000 jobs is equal to less than 3% of the people who were removed from the UI rolls in September. At this rate, it would take 3.5 years for jobs added to equal the number of people who lost their pandemic UI benefits. The management of UI in the last six months, he stressed, has been a complete disaster. Last month's nationwide assault on unemployed workers was preceded by state-level attacks on jobless benefits. Over the summer, 26 states, all but Louisiana led by Republican governors, prematurely ended federal expanded UI programs in a coercive bid to boost employment. In a sign of things to come, the right-wing plan failed then as well. August job growth, Brunig pointed out in an earlier blog post, was more than twice as fast in states that retained unemployment benefits. Despite mounting evidence against the cuts, the Democratic-controlled federal government refused to intervene to preserve pandemic-era UI before it expired on September 6th, although Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez recently unveiled a bill to extend the benefits until next February. Echoing Brunig and Tlaib, Representative Bill Pascrell on Friday said that back in June, I led my colleagues sounding the alarm on Republican governors terminating unemployment aid early. We feared their cruelty would hurt job growth, and sadly, our fears were right. The Economic Policy Institute on Friday attributed September's weak job growth to the impact of the ultra-contagious Delta variant and encouraged widespread vaccination to support economic recovery amid the ongoing pandemic. Experts at the progressive think tank also urged policymakers to pursue changes that would permanently increase the bargaining power of workers. Quote, This is yet another sign that the strong wage growth we have seen in some industries this year is not a permanent shift in worker bargaining power, but a temporary result of the very unique circumstances of this recovery, tweeted EPI President Heidi Shearholz. For sustained strong job growth for working people, we need things like the PRO Act, minimum wage increases, etc. And this isn't terribly surprising if you suddenly remove a significant source of income from 8 million people guess what those 8 million people do they stop spending because they have no money to spend guess what happens when consumers stop spending in the US economy businesses suffer because there's nobody to sell their products to or fewer people to sell their products to there's fewer people going out to dinner There's fewer people buying things in stores, though that relates to those companies not being able to sustain or to hire additional workforce. It's not rocket science. Next up, a piece by Anina Clayson, published at JacobinMag.com. All of us should be working four day weeks, and I'll throw a caveat on top of that, that not all of us need to be working four-day weeks, but those in a full-time employment should full-time should be covered easily in a four-day week. Over a year into the pandemic, the emperor stands naked when it comes to the reality of working life. Whether we have realized how many drawn-out Zoom meetings really could have been an email, or how many cashiers were forced to risk infection to maintain coffee chain's profits, The absurdities of work have become clearer than ever for many of us. This naturally leads to the question, why is this pointless toil still eating up such a large chunk of our days? Unfortunately, in a growing number of countries, this question has become more than rhetorical. The prospect of shortened working hours, a long-standing demand for the left, continues to inch closer to becoming a generally accepted political goal, thanks to years of mobilization and a growing pile of evidence on the benefits of working less. In Iceland, the Reykjavik City Council, the Trade Union Confederation BSRB, and the national government ran a series of trials of a four-day working week between 2015 and 2019, the world's largest experiment thus far in shortening working hours without slashing wages. In June 2021, researchers from UK Think Tank Autonomy and the Icelandic Association for Sustainability and Democracy released a report outlining their assessment of the trials. The result? A quote, overwhelming success measured by the well-being of workers as well as productivity levels. The Icelandic trials were a direct response to campaigning pressures from trade unions and other grassroots organizations. Over 2,500 workers in the public sector, more than 1% of the country's entire working population, moved from a 40-hour to 35- or 36-hour working weeks without any reductions in pay. The scale of the trial, combined with the variety of workplaces involved, including both 9-5 to five workers and those on non-standard shifts, means that the Icelandic experiment now provide some of the best data available on the prospect of shortening the working week. It should come as no surprise that this data paints a positive picture. Workers reported experiencing better health and less stress and burnout, and they had more time to spend with their families or on leisure activities. Productivity and service provision either remained at similar levels or improved in the majority of workplaces. With Iceland's unions playing a key role every step of the way, they wasted no time in building on the trial's success to negotiate shortened working hours on a permanent basis. Thanks to a series of successfully negotiated contracts in 2019 to 2021, 86% of Iceland's working population has either already moved to shortened working hours or gained the right to negotiate such reductions in the future. Iceland thus joined some of its Nordic neighbors in providing clear evidence for the benefits of reducing working hours. As a stronghold for social democracy, this idea has enjoyed a greater level of political acceptability in the Nordic countries than what might be found elsewhere. Last year, Finland's Prime Minister, Sana Marin set up a working group to propose specific measures to reduce working hours in the country. Twenty years after, Finland's own set of trials for a six-hour workday in the 1990s. Sweden also ran trials for a six-hour day for retirement home workers in 2015. Both experiments yielded similar results as in Iceland, happier and healthier workers, and little to no reduction in how much actually got done at the end of the day. And yet, this isn't a story of Nordic exceptionalism, particularly in the context of the pandemic. Other countries around the world have also started to dip their toes into the water. In fall 2021, Spain will follow suit with its own pilot of a four-day week, providing financial aid to companies that cut the working week to 32 hours without reducing wages. It is currently set to include over 6,000 workers. New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has also suggested a four-day week to aid economic recovery post-pandemic, with several firms following suit by offering staff four-day weeks without cutting pay. Even in Japan, where chronic overtime is such a pervasive issue that death by overwork has its own word, the government has recommended that companies allow their staff to opt for a four-day week. What do these trials have in common? They showcase two necessary conditions for their success. Large-scale financial backing, often by the government, as well as a need to involve unions as central actors. Alongside the success stories, there are also many examples of trials with more mixed results, especially those carried out in individual companies without government backing. Indeed, employers ultimately have little incentive to take on the immediate costs of reducing working hours while keeping wages the same. It takes financial compensation to convince them to not only effectively pay a higher hourly wage, but also to cut down on the amount of hours in a day when they can claim control of workers. Historically, this pushback has been constant throughout the labor movement's fights to go from 16 to 12 to 10 to 8-hour workdays. The emergence of increasingly dystopian surveillance tools used by employers to monitor their staff working from home during the pandemic shows how far employers are willing to go to retain control. It is, therefore, encouraging that ongoing trials appear to recognize the need for significant government financial backing to mitigate resistance from employers. As the Icelandic example shows, the prevalence of these proposals in the Nordic countries is in no small part attributable to the relative institutional strength of trade unions in the region. This did not come about by accident. Rather, as in most places, Labor organizations have long engaged in intense struggle to gain ground against the interests of capital, often despite violent pushback. Today, the Nordic region has the highest union density in the world, though it has fallen in recent years, enabling greater bargaining power by sheer strength of numbers to engage in collective negotiations with employers. Still, the main process through which reforms in labor policy occurs. In Iceland, sustained efforts by the country's trade union confederations transformed the trials into real change in the daily lives of workers. The new contracts negotiated by the confederations after the trials of 2015-2019 to didn't just open the door for reduced working hours for all, they also made significant gains regarding pay and benefits in many sectors. In the trial assessment report, the leader of the Icelandic Nurses Association, Gjoborg Paul Palstodir, called the negotiated contracts quote, the greatest progress we have seen in over 40 years. It is worth mentioning that this progress was only extendable to such a large portion of workers thanks to high levels of union membership in Iceland. The contracts covered 170,200 union members from Iceland's working population of around 197,000. These membership numbers may still appear as a pipe dream in many countries, including the United States and UK, where unions have suffered many decades of suppression. Boosting union membership thus appears to be a necessary first step in order to maximize the positive impact of reduced working hours. Cutting working hours is no panacea for the absurdities or horrors of working life. As with other proposals that serve to mitigate capitalism, such as the push for a universal basic income, the implementation of such policies is fraught with potential pitfalls. One such immediate risk is the simple fact that employers are likely to encourage an intensification of work to compensate for their perceived lost productivity. Your six-hour workday may end up with a shorter lunch break, or you may be pressured to meet more demanding targets and deadlines before you start your weekend on Thursday afternoon. This is naturally counterproductive to the aims of such policies, particularly in terms of worker well-being. In light of this risk, the common counter-argument that reducing working hours does not need to lead to a reduction in productivity warrants some deconstruction. While this argument is often deemed necessary to ensure buy-in from employers, isn't the fact that workers doing less work are happier and healthier a good enough reason in itself? The fact that even during a pandemic, avoiding burnout and back injuries for nurses is not seen as a sufficiently politically desirable aim shows how far we still have to go to dismantle the neoliberal sacralization of work. The good news is that the project of reducing working hours can have a positive normative effect, particularly if coupled with other measures to mitigate the harms of working life, can help build a platform for further organizing and reinvigorate optimism that pushing back against bosses' control is worth the effort. The admission that we would indeed be better off spending less time at work inherently disrupts the idea that work is valuable for its own sake. Additionally, the Icelandic trials offer evidence that as long as initiatives to reduce working hours are led with the aim of actually working less, not just faster, they can still offer concrete benefits. Efforts were made to shorten meetings, rearrange shifts, and cut tasks so that no one worker was charged with an intensified workload. In her 2021 book, Lost in Work, Amelia Horgan argues that just as work harms us in a multitude of ways, opportunities for resistance are also legion. She emphasizes that there is no one clear prescription for the problem of capitalist work. While Horgan is most sympathetic to solutions that center around transformations of ownership, a hybrid combination of tactics might prove useful, not just for winning power or demands, but for the process of denaturalizing work. Making visible that there is nothing natural or unchangeable about the way we work under capitalism, simply doing less of it can certainly present one such tactic. For this reason, as a push to, quote, go back to normal, grow stronger around the world, it is important to build on the momentum from trials exploring reduced working hours to wrestle back control of our days. Next up, a piece written by Jonathan Cook, published at jonathan-cook.net. CIA plan to poison Assange wasn't needed, The U.S. found a, quote, lawful way to disappear him. A Yahoo News investigation reveals that through much of 2017, the CIA weighed up whether to use wholly extrajudicial means to deal with the supposed threat posed by Julian Assange and his whistleblowers platform, WikiLeaks. The agency plotted either to kidnap or assassinate him. Shocking as the revelations are, exposing the entirely lawless approach of the main U.S. intelligence agency, the Yahoo investigation nonetheless tends to obscure rather than shine a light on the bigger picture. Assange has not been deprived of his freedom for more than a decade because of an unimplemented rogue operation by the CIA. Rather, he has been held in various forms of captivity, disappeared, Through the collaborations of various national governments and their intelligence agencies, aided by legal systems and the media that have systemically violated his rights and legal due process. The reality of Assange's years of persecution is far worse even than the picture of a thuggish, vengeful, power mad CIA painted by Yahoo's reporting. More than 30 former senior officials who either served in the U.S. Foreign Intelligence Agency or the Trump administration helped to piece together for Yahoo the various components of the CIA's plan. They show that the agency considered two main options for dealing with Assange in addition to then-secret moves laying the groundwork for prosecuting the WikiLeaks founder in the U.S. courts. One plan was to kidnap Assange from the Ecuadorian embassy in London, where he had been seeking political asylum since 2012. The aim was to smuggle him to the U.S., violating the sovereignty of Ecuador and the U.K., in an operation that would have had all the hallmarks of extraordinary rendition. That was the illegal procedure the U.S. used after 9-11 to abduct suspects in the, quote, War on Terror usually so they could be sent to black sites where they were tortured and held without judicial oversight. The other CIA proposal was to assassinate Assange, or perhaps more accurately, commit extrajudicial murder to silence him once and for all. Poisoning him was reportedly one of the methods considered. These scenarios need to be borne in mind when we cast our minds back to 2012, To the moment, Assange decided to seek sanctuary in Ecuador's embassy, fearing the wrath of the U.S. at his exposure of its war crimes in Afghanistan and Iraq. Not a single corporate journalist gave credence to his concerns. In fact, they ridiculed them. These latest revelations confirm what was obvious to many of the rest of us. Assange had very good reasons, indeed, to seek political asylum. Let us examine that bigger picture obscured by the reporting of the CIA's plan. 1. The agency's much greater interest in the Assange case and its more openly hostile attitudes towards him were a result of WikiLeaks' release of parts of a cache of secret files on the CIA's hacking capabilities, known as Vault 7. The agency, considering it, quote, the largest data loss in CIA history, was deeply humiliated, by the, exposure. the misleading impression created by the Yahoo investigation is that until 2017, a standard legal process was being pursued against Assange that only turned rogue after the Vault 7 release, when the CIA wanted vengeance and to intimidate WikiLeaks to prevent any further leaks. In the words of one Trump national security official, there was an inappropriate level of attention to Assange given the CIA's embarrassment Not the threat he posed in context. We should never act out of a desire for revenge. The implication is that because the CIA's various extrajudicial plots were never implemented, justice has otherwise been well served in Assange's case. But the CIA plans indicate something else entirely. They show that once the CIA was infuriated by WikiLeaks' exposure of the agency's own crimes as the Pentagon, the State Department, and the White House already were of theirs, it joined them in getting more actively involved in an existing extrajudicial process meant to finish off Assange in WikiLeaks. From the moment Assange's legal troubles began in late 2010, when two Swedish women were reported to have launched allegations of rape, Nothing followed standard procedure. As I have previously documented, Assange's case was treated in exceptional ways by Sweden, the UK, Australia, and always lurking in the background, the US. Swedish police, the country's media, and a second prosecutor all meddled in a case the main prosecutor had already ruled did not involve a criminal offense. The testimony of one of the women, who had been encouraged to go to the police by the other, was effectively hijacked and turned into a rape allegation, seemingly against her wishes. Inexplicably, Interpol issued a red notice for Assange's arrest, usually reserved for terrorists and dangerous criminals, shortly after Swedish officials had approved his traveling abroad. In the UK, the courts approved an extradition warrant for Assange that had been issued without any Swedish judicial authority. The ruling set such a terrible legal precedent that the agreement on which the extradition was based was amended shortly afterwards to ensure such a ruling could not be made again. Once Assange fled to Ecuador's embassy, the UK government surrounded it with huge numbers of police at great public expense. For a while, government ministers threatened to tear up diplomatic protocols established in law by sending police in to arrest Assange on foreign soil. As a result of freedom of information litigation by the Italian journalist Stefania Morizzi, we know Britain's prosecution service pressured Swedish prosecutors not to come to London to interview Assange through 2010 and 2011, thereby creating the embassy standoff that began a short time later. Other evidence shows Swedish prosecutors were regularly interviewing suspects in the UK, only in Assange's case was that made impossible. British prosecutors destroyed most of the emails relating to Assange the few that survive by mistake show it meddling directly in a case it should have had no legal stake in in one as Sweden proposed dropping the investigation against Assange in 2013 UK officials warned quote don't you dare another revealing email stated quote please do not think this case is being dealt with as just another extradition This and much more took place before the CIA plans exposed by Yahoo were being hatched in 2017. Two years later, Assange was dragged by London police from the Ecuador embassy in a scenario that echoed the CIA's plan. Since then, new, even more irregular legal proceedings, either for a supposed minor bail violation or for, quote, espionage and exposing U.S. war crimes, have kept Assange indefinitely locked up in a London maximum security prison. The point here is that the idea that the CIA suddenly tried to interfere in a sound legal process against Assange is laughable. Everything about the Assange case from the outset has been extrajudicial, in the sense that there has been no legal basis for the proceedings. It has been, quote, legal theater, concealing the brute force of an unaccountable superpower angry and fearful that in the digital age, its secrets and crimes can no longer be concealed from the public. What the CIA brought to the table was not some new interest in extrajudicial vengeance— that was the core of the Assange's treatment from the outset— but the specific extrajudicial tools it excels in, such as abduction and murder. Ultimately, calmer heads prevailed, even in the Trump administration, understanding that a sham legal process would better serve and conceal the war the U.S. was waging against the efforts by Assange and WikiLeaks to bring greater transparency to state actions— and accountability for state crimes, the campaign to lock away Assange for life is being pursued as enthusiastically by the Biden administration as it was earlier under Trump. And the UK courts, including the highest in the land, have been actively colluding in this charade of justice. Number two, doubtless, we are learning of the CIA's plots against Assange in part because there has been a change of administrations. Presumably, some of this is driven by score-settling from disaffected agents against Mike Pompeo, Trump's CIA director. The revelations, after all, are not coming from whistleblowers concerned about justice for Assange. They are being mediated through the CIA community, officials with an intelligence agency mindset that views Assange in the same self-serving terms as Pompeo as, quote, a non-state hostile intelligence service, Like Pompeo, these officials see Assange as a transparency terrorist. But what is worthy of note is the fact that Yahoo is a news service delivering us these disclosures. Three newspapers with huge readerships and vast resources, The New York Times, Guardian, and Washington Post, all worked closely with Assange on the WikiLeaks' early releases, raking in big profits from the earth-shattering leaks he provided. All three papers should have vested interest in ensuring that Assange is not extradited to the U.S. and locked away for life on the pretext that his journalism amounts to espionage, as both the Trump and Biden administrations are claiming. And perhaps most relevant of all, the three newspapers have long records of drawing on their extensive contacts inside the intelligence services, often allowing themselves to be used to peddle misinformation and psyops. Remember, for example that it was the New York Times reporters Judith Miller and Michael R. Gordon who became the U.S. intelligence service's favored conduit for the weapons of mass destruction deceptions that provided the rationale for the U.S. to attack, occupy, and dismember Iraq. In the U.K., The Guardian has been growing ever closer to the intelligence services since it broke with Assange and Glenn Greenwald, the reporter who brought it the Edward Snowden revelations, that the U.S. national security state was conducting illegal mass surveillance Of the public. So, how is it that these newspapers, with their wide ranging sources inside the intelligence community and their historic investment in the Assange case, heard not a peep about this story over the past four years? Is it possible that not one of the 30 or so officials who spoke to Yahoo has also spoken to these newspapers? Why is Yahoo News the one breaking such an important story? And maybe even more to the point, How is it that these three newspapers have all but ignored Yahoo's investigation and so far appear to be doing nothing to follow it up? The Guardian could barely stifle a yawn as it covered the story as an extended brief online and offered slightly fuller report for its Australian readers. But at least it mentioned the story. I have been unable to find any coverage in either the New York Times or Washington Post. Is the fact that large numbers of senior U.S. officials are admitting that their agency seriously thought about abducting or murdering a journalist these publications worked with on some of the biggest stories of the modern age not hugely newsworthy for them? But all of this indifference or aversion to reporting on Assange's horrifying plight is par for the course for these respected, supposedly liberal, media outlets. Like the rest of the corporate media, They have largely ignored the extradition proceedings going on in the U.K. courts over the past year and which are due to reach their climax next month when a final hearing is expected. The media's continuing silence can only be understood as complicity in the persecution of a fellow journalist. The Guardian's failings have been particularly egregious, as I have documented before. The paper has been barely concealed its vendetta against Assange, much of it following a falling out with him after one of its senior reporters recklessly exposed a WikiLeaks password to a cache of classified documents that has been exploited by Washington in building its so-called espionage case against Assange. The Guardian has a vested interest, one it has not disclosed, in keeping the spotlight on Assange rather than allowing it to shift to its own role. That is the context for interpreting its pitifully false and malicious story, again provided by intelligence services, tying Assange to a supposed conspiracy between Trump and the Kremlin that has been obsessively advanced by the liberal media. The Guardian's report that a Trump aide, Paul Manafort, and unidentified, quote, Russians... Repeatedly visited Assange at the embassy, one of the most heavily surveilled spots in the world, without leaving a single trace of their presence, should never have made it to print. The simplest checks would have raised dozens of red flags, but the paper has chosen silence rather than correcting or withdrawing the story. The only conclusion one can draw from their behavior is that the liberal media, far from being watchdogs on power, regard themselves as adjuncts of power. They feel much closer to the country's secret duplicity-dealing murderous intelligence services than they do to a fellow journalist being hounded into permanent incarceration. Number three, the Yahoo report makes clear, too, that the surveillance operation against Assange and WikiLeaks intensified dramatically after Snowden released his confidential documents in 2013 in collaboration with reporter Glenn Greenwald. The Snowden files show that the U.S. has begun expanding its ambition to use new digital technology to covertly surveil the rest of the world. Now it was increasingly turning that technological prowess inwards to covertly surveil its own population. A transparency organization like WikiLeaks, it quickly became obvious, was a major threat to U.S. intelligence services' plans. According to Yahoo's sources, it was the Obama administration that began surveilling WikiLeaks more intensively and through the net wider to expose its networks. The CIA was already centrally involved creating a special WikiLeaks team that worked closely with other friendly spy agencies, including one can presume the Five Eyes intelligence-sharing states that also comprise Canada, the UK, Australia, and New Zealand. One official, William Evania, Evanina, who recently retired as a top U.S. counterintelligence official, notes the key role the Five Eyes group played in Assange's case. The goal, Yahoo! was told by Evan, Evanina, its main-named source, was to tie WikiLeaks back to hostile state intelligence services. In other words, the aim was to suggest not that Assange was interested in transparency or acting out of the principle, but he wanted to undermine the U.S. on behalf of a hostile foreign power. Assange's fate was sealed within the Obama administration in summer 2016 when WikiLeaks released a cache of Democratic Party emails that cast Obama's chosen successor, Hillary Clinton, in a damning light and showed that the party had rigged its election procedures to stop her main challenger, Bernie Sanders, from winning. As an aside, the Yahoo report notes that the idea of kidnapping Assange in violation of Ecuador and the UK's sovereignty actually preceded Pompeo's arrival at the CIA. Despite Yahoo's focus on Pompeo, it was actually Obama, the Democratic Party's thirst for vengeance, that paved the way for Trump's appointee to have viable options of either prosecuting Assange for espionage or abducting him. Obama's officials immediately tarred Assange as conspiring with Donald Trump, Clinton's rival for the presidential election. He was thereby dragged into an establishment conspiracy theory, Russiagate, that claimed Trump was serving as a puppet of the Kremlin. Given the many years spent under both Obama and Trump, trying to shore up this claim by the most digitally advanced states in the world, it comes as something of a surprise to learn that they came up with nothing. Evidence of WikiLeaks' collusion with Russia appears never to have surfaced, even though it became an implicit driving assumption behind the Russiagate claims. One unusually honest official, Robert Litt, a former general counsel of the Office of the Director for National Intelligence, observed to Yahoo of the claims made by Pompeo that Assange was acting on behalf of the Russians, Based on the information that I had seen, I thought he was out over his skis on that. Special counsel Robert Mueller found no evidence to back up such a claim. The extradition hearings in London made no plausible cause, no plausible case for it either. The only tangible piece of evidence is the Guardian's Manafort story mentioned earlier, which proved so embarrassingly ridiculous everyone involved has tried to quietly forget about it. If there was really a case that Assange and WikiLeaks were working hand-in-glove with the Kremlin, it is hard to imagine that no trace of that collusion was ever found. Instead, Washington built much of its espionage case against Assange on the testimony of Sir Gerder Thorderson, a convicted pedophile and financial fraudster, as well as an FBI asset. He now admits his testimony was a fabrication and that he lied after he was promised immunity from prosecution. The entire case against Assange has been shown to be a house of cards. Interestingly, Yahoo News' report shows that despite the void of evidence, Justice Department officials were keen to concoct a legal case to forestall two dangers that might undermine their efforts to keep Assange incarcerated and preclude them from launching a credible prosecution. The first was the CIA's unhinged scenarios that included rendition or a possible Hollywood-style gun battle on the streets of London to prevent Ecuador helping Assange escape the embassy. Were the CIA to be successful, Justice Department officials fretted, Assange might arrive in the U.S. without any formal or plausible charges leveled against him. The other was that the U.K. was rapidly running out of pretext to keep him locked out of view, after police had been allowed to drag him from the embassy in early early 2019. Ecuador's new president had changed official policy on sheltering Assange shortly after the IMF agreed an enormous $4.2 billion loan. Sweden had already dropped its investigation of Assange in May 2017, so Assange was moved to Belmarsh Maximum Security Prison on charges relating to a minor bail infraction. Those charges ignored the fact that he had violated his bail conditions only because he was seeking political asylum as recognized in international law. The UK judge issued the maximum sentence possible for such an infraction, giving the US time to formulate the espionage case that has provided the pretext for keeping him locked up ever since, in conditions during a pandemic that have put his life at risk. 4. Did the UK conspire with the US in all this? The massive police presence around the embassy, the British government's illegal threats to invade Ecuador's embassy, the original highly irregular ruling on extradition, the threatening emails from state prosecutors to Sweden, The complicity in holding Assange in a maximum security prison in London on a debatable bail infraction and the known role of the Five Eyes group, of which the UK is a key member, all strongly suggest it was. Yahoo reports, Former officials differ on how much the UK government knew about the CIA's rendition plans for Assange, but at some point, American officials did raise the issue with their British counterparts. In other words, yes, the U.K. did know about the most unlawful parts of the CIA's plans. The question is only how closely it was involved. One former counterintelligence official observed, quote, There was a discussion with the Brits about turning the other cheek or looking the other way when a team of guys went inside and did a rendition. But the British said, no way, you're not doing that on our territory, that ain't happening. The U.K. could not afford to look publicly complicit in illegal U.S. actions that would have treated the streets of London no differently from those of Mogadishu. Instead, all the evidence suggests that Britain conspired repeatedly over a decade to help the U.S. turn its illegal campaign against Assange and WikiLeaks into a seemingly, quote, lawful extradition process through the courts. Again, according to the Yahoo report, White House officials developed a backup plan the British would hold Assange on bail-jumping charge, giving Justice Department prosecutors a 48-hour delay to rush through an indictment. In other words, the UK explicitly followed U.S. instructions in holding Assange over a minor bail infraction. Evanina confirmed the UK's collusion with the U.S. efforts to keep Assange permanently incarcerated, telling Yahoo that the pair developed a, quote, joint plan to prevent Assange being able to walk free from the embassy. The truth is that, appalling as the Yahoo News revelations are, they failed to convey the reality that the U.S. could count on multiple states, not least the U.K., to conspire in providing a, quote, legal veneer to a decade-long covert war against Assange and WikiLeaks for exposing U.S. war crimes. Even more frightening, all the evidence suggests... That The U.S. was also able to manipulate the legal processes in both Sweden and the U.K. to engineer Assange's effective incarceration all that time, and to this day. And even more terrifying, the same evidence suggests that the establishment media in several countries could be relied on, at best, to turn a blind eye to fellow journalists' persecution and, at worst, to actively conspire in that persecution. Yahoo News provided a great service in bringing some of the reality about Assange's persecution to light, but there is much more to unearth. Sadly, our supposed watchdogs on power appear far too busy feeding at the trough to start sniffing out more of the truth. And from the injustice of the case against, or the false case against, Julian Assange, we move to the injustice of of the case against Stephen Donziger. This piece is written by Chris Hedges, is published at ShearPost.com. Judge Loretta Preska, an advisor to the Conservative Federalist Society to which Chevron is a major donor, sentenced human rights attorney and Chevron nemesis Stephen Donziger to six months in prison Friday for misdemeanor contempt of court after he had already spent 787 days under house arrest in New York. Preska's caustic outburst, she said at the sentencing, quote, it seems that only the proverbial two-by-four between the eyes will instill in him any respect for the law. Capped a judicial farce worthy of the antics of Vasily Vasilievich, the presiding judge at the major show trials of the great purges in the Soviet Union, and the Nazi judge Roland Freisler, who once shouted at a defendant, you really are a lousy piece of trash. Donziger, a graduate of Harvard Law School, has been fighting against polluting American oil companies for nearly three decades on behalf of indigenous communities and peasant farmers in Ecuador. His only, quote, crime was winning a $9.5 billion judgment in 2011 against Chevron, for thousands of plaintiffs. The oil giant had bought Texaco Oil Company holdings in Ecuador, inheriting a lawsuit alleging it deliberately discharged 16 billion gallons of toxic waste from its oil sites into rivers, groundwater, and farmland. Since the verdict, Chevron has come after him, weaponizing litigation to destroy him economically, professionally, and personally. The sentencing came a day after Donziger petitioned the courts to consider an opinion by the United Nations Human Rights Council that found his house arrest a violation of international human rights law. The UN Human Rights Council said his house arrest counted as detention under international law, and it was therefore illegal for Judge Preska to demand an additional six months in jail. Amnesty International also called for Donziger's immediate release. Donziger and his lawyers have two weeks to appeal the judge's order that Donziger be sent immediately to jail. Preska denied Donziger bail, claiming he is a flight risk. If the Federal Court of Appeals turns down Donziger's appeal, he will go to jail for six months. The irony not lost on Donziger and his lawyers is that the higher court may overturn Preska's ruling against him, but by the time that decision is made, he will potentially have already spent six months in jail. Quote, What Judge Preska is trying to do is force me to serve the entirety of my sentence before the appellate court can rule, Donziger told me by phone on Monday. If the appellate court rules in my favor, I will still have served my sentence, although I am innocent in the eyes of the law. Donziger, his lawyers have pointed out, is a first person under U.S. law charged with a B misdemeanor to be placed on home confinement prior to trial with an ankle monitor. He is the first person charged with any misdemeanor to be held under home confinement for over two years. He is the first attorney ever to be charged with criminal contempt over a discovery dispute in a civil case where the attorney went into voluntary contempt to pursue an appeal. He is the first person to be prosecuted under Rule 42, Criminal Contempt, by a private prosecutor with financial ties to the entity and industry that was a litigant in the underlying civil dispute that gave rise to the orders. He is the first person tried by a private prosecutor who had ex parte communications with the charging judge while that judge remained and remains unrecused on the criminal case. No lawyer in New York, for my level of offense, ever has served more than 90 days, and that was in home confinement. Donziger told the court, "I have now been in home confinement eight times that period of time. I have been disbarred without a hearing, where I have been unable to present factual evidence. Thus, I am unable to earn an income in my profession. I have no passport." I can't travel, can't do human rights work the normal way, which I believe I am reasonably good at, can't see my clients in Ecuador, can't visit the affected communities to hear the latest news of cancer deaths, or struggles to maintain life in face of constant exposure to oil pollution. In addition, and this is little known, Judge Louis A. Kaplan has imposed millions and millions of dollars of fines and court costs on me. Kaplan is a judge for Chevron's lawsuit against Donziger. Presca is his handpicked judge for the contempt charges. He has ordered me to pay millions to Chevron to cover their legal fees in attacking me, and then he let Chevron go into my bank accounts and take all my life savings because I did not have the funds to cover these costs. Chevron still has a pending motion to order me to pay them an additional $32 million in legal fees. That's where things stand today. I ask you humbly. Might that be enough punishment already for a class B misdemeanor? Judge Preska was unmoved. Mr. Donziger has spent the last 7 years thumbing his nose at the US judicial system, Preska said at his sentencing hearing. Now it's time to pay the piper. The 6-month sentence was the maximum the judge was allowed to impose. She ruled that his house arrest cannot be counted as part of his detention from start to finish. This has been a burlesque. It is emblematic of a court system that has been turned over to lackeys of corporate power who use the veneer of jurisprudence, decorum, and civility to make a mockery of the rule of law. When the law is neutered, judges become the enforcers of injustice. These corporate judges, who epitomize what Hannah Arendt called the banality of evil, now routinely make war on workers, civil liberties, unions, and environmental regulations. Presca sent Jeremy Hammond to prison for a decade for hacking into the computers of a private security firm that works on behalf of the government, including the Department of Homeland Security, and corporations such as Dow Chemical. In 2011, Hammond released to the website WikiLeaks and Rolling Stone and other publications some 3 million emails from the Texas-based company Strategic Forecasting Incorporated, or Stratfor. The sentence was one of the longest in U.S. history for hacking, and the maximum Preska could impose under a plea agreement in the case. I sat through the Hammond trial. I watched Presca spew her bile and contempt at Hammond from the bench with the same vitriol she used, to attack Donziger. Preska is also infamous for her long judicial crusade to force New York public schools to provide tax-subsidized free space for evangelical churches based on blatantly illogical readings of the Constitution. The persecution of Donzigers fits a pattern familiar to millions of poor Americans who are coerced into accepting plea deals, many for crimes they did not commit and sent to prison for decades. It fits the pattern of the judicial lynching and prolonged psychological torture of Julian Assange and Chelsea Manning. It fits the pattern of those denied habeas corpus in due process at Guantanamo Bay or in CIA black sites. It fits the pattern of those charged under terrorism laws many held at the Federal Metropolitan Correction Center, MCC, in Lower Manhattan, who cannot see the evidence used to indict them. It fits the pattern of the widespread use of special administrative measures, known as SAMs, imposed to prevent or severely restrict communication with other prisoners, attorneys, family, the media, and people outside the jail. It fits the pattern of the extreme sensory deprivation and prolonged isolation used on those in our black sites and prisons, a form of psychological torture, the refinement of torture, as science. By the time a, quote, terrorist is dragged into our secretive courts, the bewildered suspect no longer has the mental and psychological capability to defend themselves. If they can do this legally to the demonized, they can, and one day will, do it to the rest of us. The Donziger case is an ominous warning that the American legal system is broken. Ralph Nader, who graduated from Harvard Law School, has long decried the capture of the courts and law schools by corporate power, calling the nation's attorneys and judges, quote, lucrative cogs in the corporate wheel. He notes that law school curriculums are built around corporate law and corporate power and corporate perpetration and corporate defense. Victor Klumperer, who was dismissed from his post as professor of Romance Languages at the University of Dresden in 1935 because of his Jewish ancestry, astutely noted how at first the Nazis, quote, changed the values, the frequency of words, and made them into common property, words that had previously been used by individuals or tiny troops. They confiscated words for the party, saturated words and phrases and sentence forms with their poison, They made language serve their terrible system. They conquered words and made them into their strongest advertising tools. At once, the most public and most secret. And Klemperer noted, as a redefinition of old concepts took place, the public was oblivious. This redefinition of words and concepts has, as Klemperer witnessed during the rise of fascism, allowed the courts to twist the law into an instrument of injustice. Revoking our rights by judicial fiat. It has seen the courts permit unlimited dark money into the political campaigns under Citizens United, defending our money saturated elections as the right to petition the government and a form of free speech. The courts have revoked our right to privacy and legalized wholesale government surveillance in the name of national security. The courts grant corporations the rights of individuals while rarely holding the individuals who run the corporations accountable for corporate crimes. Very few of the legal rulings that benefit corporate power have popular support. The corporate disemboweling of the country, therefore, is increasingly given cover by Christian fascists, who energize their base around abortion, prayer in schools, guns, and breaking down the separation of church and state. These issues are rarely addressed in cases before federal courts, but they distract the base from the slew of pro-corporate rulings that dominate most court dockets. Corporations such as Tyson Foods, Purdue, Walmart, and Sam's Warehouse have poured millions into institutions that indoctrinate these Christian fascists, including Liberty University and Patrick Henry Law School. They fund the Judicial Crisis Network and U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which campaigned for Amy Coney Barrett's appointment to the Supreme Court. Barrett opposes abortion and belongs to people of praise, a far-right Catholic cult that practices speaking in tongues. She and the other far-right ideologues are hostile to LGBTQ rights, but this is not why she is so beloved by corporations who are not interested in abortion, LGBTQ equality, or gun rights. Barrett and the Christian fascists embrace an ideology that believes that God will take care of their righteous. Those who are poor, those who are sick, those who go to prison, those who are unemployed, those who cannot succeed in society, do so because they have failed to please God. In this worldview, there is no need for unions, universal health care, a social safety net, or prison reform. Barrett has ruled consistently in favor of corporations to cheat gig workers out of overtime, green light fossil fuel extraction, and pollution, and strip consumers of protection from corporate fraud. The watchdog group Accountable.us found that as a circuit court judge, Barrett faced at least 55 cases in which citizens took on corporate entities in front of her court, and 76% of the time she sided with the corporations. The Christian fascists allied with organizations such as the Federalist Society under the Trump administration gave lifetime appointments to nearly 200 judges, roughly 23% of all federal judgeships. That included 53 to the nation's appellate courts, the court immediately under the Supreme Court. The American Bar Association, the country's largest nonpartisan coalition of lawyers, has rated many of these appointments as unqualified. There are currently six Federalist Society Supreme Court justices, including Amy Coney Barrett, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh, who Nader calls, quote, a corporation masquerading as a human being. Two Federalist Society Supreme Court justices, Clarence Thomas and late Antonin Scalia, who was an original faculty advisor to the organization founded by the conservative law students in 1982, were supported in the nomination process by Joe Biden. The stacking of the courts with corporate puppets, however, began long before Trump. It was carried out by both Republican and Democratic administrations. Preska was appointed by Republican President G.W. Bush. However, the judge who preceded Presca in the Donziger case, Judge Lewis A. Kaplan, a former lawyer for the tobacco industry, who had undisclosed investments in funds with Chevron Holdings, according to his public financial disclosure statement, was appointed by Democrat President Clinton. The targeting of the courts was one of the key goals of the Lewis Powell, of Lewis Powell, a corporate lawyer later elevated to the Supreme Court by President Nixon. In Powell's 1971 memo to the Chamber of Commerce, a blueprint for the slow-motion corporate coup that has taken place, he called on business interests to pack the judiciary with corporate-friendly judges. The courts in all tyrannies are dominated by mediocrities and buffoons. They make up for their intellectual and moral vacuity with a zealous subservience to power. They turn courtroom trials into opera buffa, at least until the victim is shackled and pushed out the door into a prison cell. They fulminate in caustic tirades at the condemned, whose sentence is never in doubt, and whose guilt is never in question. Quote, It started when Texaco went into Ecuador in the Amazon in the 1960s and cut a sweetheart deal with the military government then ruling Ecuador. Donziger told me for a column I wrote about his case a year ago. Over the next 25 years, Texaco was the exclusive operator of a very large area of the Amazon that had several oil fields within this area, 1,500 square miles. They drilled hundreds of wells. They created thousands of open-air, unlined, toxic waste pits where they dumped the heavy metals and toxins that came up from the ground when they drilled. They ran pipes from the pits into rivers and streams that local people relied on for their drinking water, their fishing, and their sustenance. They poisoned this pristine ecosystem in which lived five indigenous peoples, as well as a lot of other non-indigenous rural communities. There was a mass industrial poisoning. The verdict came down about $18 billion in favor of the affected communities, which is what it would take at a minimum to clean up the actual damage and compensate the people for some of their injuries. Donziger told me. That eventually got reduced on appeal in Ecuador to $9.5 billion, but it was affirmed by three appellate courts, including the highest court of Ecuador. It was affirmed by the Canadian Supreme Court, where the Ecuadorians went to enforce their judgment in a unanimous opinion in 2015. Chevron promptly sold its assets and left Ecuador. It refused to pay the fees to clean up its environmental damage, It invested an estimated $2 million to destroy Danziger. Chevron sued him using a civil courts portion of the federal law famous for breaking the New York Mafia in the 1970s, the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations, or RICO Act. Chevron, which has more than $260 billion in assets, hired an estimated 2,000 lawyers from 60 law firms to carry out its campaign, according to court documents. But the oil giant which did not want a jury to hear the case, dropped its demand for financial damages, which would have allowed Danziger to request a jury trial. This allowed, allowed Judge Kaplan to decide the RICO case against Danziger alone. He found credible a witness named Alberto Guerra, an Ecuadorian judge, relocated to the U.S. by Chevron at a course cost of some $2 million, who claimed the verdict in Ecuador was a product of a bribe. Kaplan used Guerra's testimony as primary evidence for the racketeering charge, although Guerra, a former judge, later admitted to an international tribunal that he had falsified his testimony. John Kecker of San Francisco, one of Donziger's lawyers on that case, said he was up against 160 lawyers for Chevron, and during the trial, he felt like a goat tethered to a stake. He called the court proceedings under Kaplan a Dickensian farce and a show trial. In the end, Kaplan ruled that the judgment in the Ecuadorian court against Chevron was a result of fraud. He also ordered Donziger to turn over decades of all-client communication to Chevron, in effect eradicating attorney-client privilege, a backbone of the Anglo-American legal system with roots dating to ancient Rome. Donziger appealed what was, according to legal experts following the case, an unprecedented and illegal order. While Donziger's appeal was pending, Kaplan charged him with misdemeanor criminal contempt for this principled stance, carrying a maximum sentence of six months, as well as his refusal to turn over his passport, his personal electronics, and to refrain from seeking the collection of the original award against Chevron. When the U.S. Attorney's Office declined for five years to prosecute his criminal contempt charges against the environmental lawyer, Kaplan used an exceedingly rare judicial maneuver, appointed the private law firm of Seward and Kissel to act in the name of the government to prosecute Donziger. Neither the judge nor the law firm disclosed that Chevron has been a client of Seward and Kissel. Kaplan also violated the established random case assignment protocol to personally assign Preska, who had served on an advisory board of the Federalist Society, a group to which Chevron has been a lavish donor, to hear the case. Kaplan had Preska demand Donziger post an $800,000 bond on the misdemeanor charge. Preska placed him under house arrest and confiscated his passport, which he has used to meet with attorneys around the world attempting to enforce the judgment against Chevron. Kaplan managed to have Donziger disbarred. He allowed Chevron to freeze Donziger's bank accounts slapped Donziger with millions in fines without allowing him a jury, forced him to wear an ankle monitor 24 hours a day, and effectively shut down his ability to earn a living. Kaplan allowed Chevron to impose a lien on Donziger's apartment in Manhattan, where he lives with his wife and teenage son. None of this would surprise those targeted by the tyrannies of the past. What would be surprising, perhaps, to many Americans is how advanced our own corporate tyranny has become. Donziger never stood a chance. Neither does Julian Assange. These judges are not, in the end, focused on Danziger and Assange, but on us. The show trials they preside over are meant to be transparently biased. They are designed to send a message. All who defy corporate power and the national security state will be lynched. There will be no reprieve, because there is no justice. And that'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can check out all the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral at YouCan'tBeneutral.com. You can follow on Twitter at YCBneutral. And you can listen to this and all my podcasts playing 24 7 at MovingTrainRadio.com. And now, a moment of zin. Thanks for listening.
1: For the judge that day, as he refused me bail, I knew that I would spend my time awaiting trial in jail. I said, There is no justice, as they let me out the door. And the judge said, This isn't a court of justice, son, this is a court of law. First, send me to Windsor and then to Stoke on Trent. In a holding cell in Liverpool, three days and nights I spend. My solicitor can't find me, and my family don't know. I keep telling them that I'm innocent. They say, Come on, son, in you go. Picked up on suspicion of something I haven't done. And here I sit in f waiting for my trial to come. It's a cruel, unusual punishment that society demands. Is until proven guilty, 18 on the mind. up in this jail built in 1882 one man to one prison cell was a victorian value now three of us are squeezed in here and you can't escape the smell of that bucket in the corner and we eat in here as well They let me out of this cage to slop that bucket out To get my food and bring it back if I'm lucky get a shower Apart from one hours exercise I'm locked in all day You don't turn criminals into citizens by treating them this way of law and order, the stench of wormwood scrubs. With judges quick to sentence, sending more down from above. It's a cruel, unusual punishment that society demands. Innocent till proven guilty, Latino on